If you would take your scriptures and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. Ephesians 1. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Mm -hmm. Father, you have told us everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that you desire. You have told us We're not merely to listen to your word, but to do what it says, lest we deceive ourselves. To only listen to your word is to be like a man who sees himself in a mirror and forgets what he looks like. We need to look intently into your word and learn, for it is only in your word we can find freedom for our souls. Guide us today in our study. In Christ's name, amen. Paul has laid out in this first chapter of Ephesians a strong presentation of the sovereign God's plan of redemption. 
He has shown the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in bringing believers to eternal life. He has made it very plain for those who will read with care the first 14 verses that salvation is the work of the triune God alone. You are saved by God's call. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it is God's call that made you alive in Jesus Christ. Paul has stressed the sovereign nature of God's work and the power of his grace to redeem. He shows that even the assurance of this work of God in your heart is given because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I hope as we have studied these first 14 verses, you have grown in your appreciation of the grace given in Jesus Christ. I pray you're growing ever more thankful of God's work on your behalf, both in the sending of Jesus and in the sending of the Holy Spirit. I trust you have seen that without God's giving a new heart, you could never have any hope of eternal life. I trust you have seen that without God's giving a new heart, you could never have any hope of eternal life. I think Paul has made it very clear. You cannot have salvation without complete trust in Jesus Christ and in his work on Calvary's cross. There can be nothing else that can save. Jesus came to do everything the scripture says must be done for salvation. The law was very specific about what was required to please God. It required perfect obedience for reconciliation with God. You understand, God hates sin. God hates sin. He cannot abide it, and he will not allow it in his presence. The law was given to show that no man, no man who has sinned in his heart, can be saved. It continued to show that God was preparing to come into his own creation to do for men what they were not capable of doing on their own. The Old Testament scripture shows over and over again that man is helpless and hopeless to save himself. But it does not leave us in that helpless and hopeless estate. Jesus came and fulfilled every jot and tittle that law demands of men. You are shown that you are a sinner lost and without hope, but you are also shown in the New Testament you can have hope if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God's only begotten Son. Having made all of that as clear as he could, Paul now turns his attention to something each believer should make a daily habit of, giving thanks for all God has given him. He is here praying for the church at Ephesus, but this prayer can be applied to all who he says in verse 1 are the faithful in Jesus Christ. As we look at these last nine verses of chapter 1, you could be aware this in the original Greek is one sentence. It consists of 169 Greek words. It is one of those foundational passages that show, as Christ, show Christ as the eternal foundation of the church. He is a complete salvation of all who hear and believe in him and his work of redemption. All blessings come through him and through him alone. In this first sentence, Paul prays for the church. First, he prays for them to have faith. 
Second, he prays that they may be filled with hope. Third, he prays for their power. Fourth, he prays for the fullness of the church. So let's examine each of these, this, each examine this prayer and see what it says about your relationship with Christ and with his body. Paul is filled with gratitude by the blessings he just recounted. What a joy. What a joy should fill the heart of every believer who reads these first 14 verses. Not only have these revealed mysteries caused him great joy, but also he reports he is receiving concerning the faithfulness of God's people. So the testimony of these people is making a great difference. Verses 15 through 17. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul heard. He heard of the faith. He heard of the love of these Ephesians. Now, how they are showing these by their works of love. They have a testimony, a testimony of their love for Jesus Christ. Faith, if it is the real thing, will always be expressed by true love. We are not talking of the love that gives people what they want, but a love that gives them what they need. That's true love, when you're meeting the needs of others. I'm sure you all know parents who raise their children without discipline. You know those children turn into spoiled brats. They are spoiled brats because they do not receive discipline. Discipline is important if you want that child to grow into a mature and productive adult. The same is true in Christianity. If you want to be known as a follower of Jesus Christ, you must listen to correction. This is the reason Paul sees these people as a source of joy. They have listened to the word and have let it be a guide in the conduct of their lives. It's hard to open yourself to the correction of others. If you, it is your nature to rebel. But if God's love has touched you, you must listen even when it hurts. You must allow faith in Christ to be the agent of change in your life. This is the vow every believer makes as he comes into the church. Psalm 15, 4 says, He who swears to his own hurt does not and does not change. When you as a believer promise something, you are to fulfill that promise even if it causes you harm. These are the changes God expects from you. Your focus becomes Christ, not yourself. Paul says in verse 16, that he has not stopped giving thanks for these changes in the lives of these believers. You are being remembered before the throne of God every minute of every day. You are being remembered in a wonderful way by your Lord and Savior. When you belong to Christ, he does not abandon you. What is it Paul is asking God to do for you? Verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. He's asking that you grow in faith. 
you have received the spirit of wisdom, which is the Holy Spirit. When you are saved, your new heart became the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If you already have the Holy Spirit, then why in the world is Paul asked the Father to give it to you now? At salvation, you were given enough insight to know you were a sinner and that you needed a Savior and that Jesus Christ was your Savior. That's the milk of the Word. Paul wants you to grow in your understanding of this great mystery revealed in Jesus Christ concerning your redemption. He wants you to get into the meat. He wants you to know the full depth of God's love given in his Son. He wants you to understand the depths of despair with which, from which you have been drawn. He wants to grow you to grow in the good works that have been prepared for you to do. He wants you to know, to understand, and to grow. He knows there's only one way for that to happen. And that is for you to grow in your understanding of God's written word. So he prays that you will be encouraged and strengthened by a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. He also prays that God's wisdom will empower you to learn of him and his great character and plan of redemption. His desire for all believers is that the Holy Spirit will continually open their hearts to the great revelation, to this great revelation, a revelation given through the only begotten Son. Is this the desire of your heart this morning? To know the great mystery of God, to study his word and grow in your ability to take this glorious message of hope to a lost and dying world? Remember, this idea of taking this truth to the world is one given to the church collectively. You may not be the preacher, but by the gifts God has given you, by the commitments you make to support the church, you can be a part of taking his word to others. Remember, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for each of his children. Those who are truly his will be drawn to his body and will seek to know his gifts and to use them. Then others will hear of you, just as Paul says in verse 16, he heard of the Ephesians, about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. The natural outworkings of faith and love in a believer's life is always hope. Hope's a very important thing to us. It's not that we're hoping something might happen. It's a hope that we know something's going to happen. Paul continues his prayer for that hope in the lives of believers. Verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I want you to note the way he words this. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. He makes a point to say the eyes of your understanding. Now, he does this because Christianity is a religion of the ear, not the eye. What needs enlightening in every man is the heart, which is where your understanding begins. It is, as Jeremiah 17, 9 says in the NIV, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. The human heart is the bottom of the pit when it comes to darkness. There's no darker place. 
It's so dark that when Christ came into the world, the human heart could not understand him. John 14, 1, 1, 4 and 5. In Christ was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. The only way, the only way you can understand the light is to be born anew, born again, to be given a new heart, a heart of flesh. But these people of Ephesus have been reborn. They are already exhibiting faith and love in their lives. Why does Paul pray such a prayer for them? He says that you may know what is the hope of his calling. The hope is the center of life. Romans, the heart is the center of life. Romans 10, 10 says, for with the heart one believes. In Matthew 12, 34, we are told, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We are warned in Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it sprang the issues of life. 1 Samuel 16, 7, we are reminded, man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even when you have a new heart, it is necessary to constantly be examining that heart, searching for sin, searching for doubt, making sure that the light of your path is not shattered by revenge, that you are sure of the hope which is guiding you. That focus of, the, of, of your heart is on Jesus Christ and on nothing else. You must constantly review, be reviewing the promises of God's word to those who are faithful. The hymn we sang this morning, I love to tell the story, one of my favorites, says you should love to tell it, thus to hear it, because it did so much for me. It goes on to say, I love to tell the story for those who know it best, seem hungering and thirst to hear it like the rest. This is what Paul means when he speaks of the eyes of your heart. He wants you to hunger and thirst for this good news. Paul also prays this prayer so that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance of the saints? What is it? What is it God is planning for those who love him and preserve and are preserved through this life and faith and good works? 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul says, we cannot fully know the riches of our inheritance by our ability. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, he says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. Paul asked God to continually give you his spirit to reveal to you the mysteries of God in Jesus Christ, to show in your heart the truth of his glorious word, to help you see the wonderful things your salvation has done, is doing, and will do for you and for all the saints with you. Christianity is not a religion of individuals. It is the religion of God's people. What is the great covenantal promise? I will be your God and you will be my people. One of the things Paul really wants you to see in this letter is the high place of Christ's church in the fulfilling of this promise. This was all done to bring God's people out of the sinful world into a glorious world with him and the church is the vessel through which it will be accomplished. This glorious inheritance is not in you alone. It is in the saints. One of the things you should be searching for in your life 
is your closeness to God's people. It's kind of like following the spokes of a wheel down to the hub. We each have a spoke to follow. The closer we come to the center, the closer we become with each other. Now, I'm not saying there are many ways to God. There's only one. But we do each come to Christ through a different life path. Each spoke is the same, the teaching of Christ. The more you learn of the true gospel, the closer you will be drawn to others who are learning the same thing. This is what makes the church go from a religious organization to a spiritual family that should be even closer than our natural families. This is what Paul is praying for in the lives of every believer. Paul gave in the first 14 verses a review of the great power of God in this work of redemption. To bring hope into your heart and to guarantee your inheritance, God has used his great power. Verses 19 and 20 through 21. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. How is it? How is it that you can have any hope? How can you be sure of any inheritance? The only way, the only way is by observation of God's power at work. Throughout history, God has placed his stamp of approval upon his works by his great power, by signs and wonders. God does not do miracles to make men believe in him. That would become a religion of the eye. He did, he has always called men to hear and believe. The great Shema, which means to hear, the Hebrew. The great call to Israel was to hear. Deuteronomy 6, 3 and 4. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The signs and wonders were only to show it was the great creator God speaking. The last great sign still stands as a testament, a testament of God's power at work, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul makes a comparison of this with the work of God in your own life. Romans 6, verses 8 through 11. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead, indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It was God. It was God who raised Christ from the grave. It is God who has raised you from death to life in Jesus Christ. You being raised was by the same power that raised Christ. You didn't have anything to do with it. It wasn't your decision. It wasn't your act or anything else from you. It was the power of God. You are called as Israel was called. Hear, O believer, and be careful to be obedient. Hear, O believer, it is the power of your God that has saved you. Christ's resurrection was the foundation of all hope. 
it was given to show all who would hear and believe this great power of God. You are a hopeless and worthless sinner. There, there was absolutely nothing you could do to regain your place before God. Because your heart was dark, no keeping of law could make it anew. No sacrifice, no amount of sacrifice could change your nature from rebellion to submission. Christ came. Christ lived the perfect life required by the law. He died the atoning death required for reconciliation. He then descended into the grave and defeated its terrible darkness and separation from God. He broke the hold of hell on men and killed Satan's power over his people with his resurrection. All of this was a demonstration of what God was going to do for those men who would hear the message of redemption brought by Jesus Christ. That God, by his power, would raise them from the dead, would atone for them, would defeat their enemies so that they too might be with him in his heavenly realm. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Through this work, Jesus has become the sole authority in creation. He is above all other powers and dominions, and that means above your own free will. You cannot by any word or action thwart the plans of God. He is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign power of this universe. God does not run over you. He allowed you to make your own choice in Adam. You with Adam chose to rebel. He now wins back those who have cho- who, whom he has chosen by the beautiful love shown in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You with Adam chose to rebel. What a terrible thing. You need Jesus Christ to overcome that choice. For it's Christ alone who can do for you what the scripture called for you to do to be with God. He empowers his people to see their rebellious hearts and enables them to know the love of Jesus Christ. He woos them with his great love and concern, making it so clear and so irresistible that they cannot turn away. Through his power, they are brought into hope and filled with assurance that this great inheritance is indeed theirs. Why has God done all of this through his own son? Verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ was given all authority. Why was he given this authority? For the church, for his body. The church is God's people. They are called out of the world, all called together to be witnesses of the world, to the world of the power and grace of God in Jesus Christ. Once you become a believer, the idea of individualism must go out the window. You are being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ just as everyone else in Christ. We are to begin to resemble one another. Paul lays this out in Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God, therefore as dearly loved children. You are called. You're called to be an imitator of God. How and in what regard are you to imitate God? 
You begin to learn this imitation through God's communicable attributes, such as love, mercy, kindness, goodness, and justice. Those communicable attributes mean they're attributes God has and we can have. Please understand, this calling is not simply calling someone to a good moral person. It is calling them to be a reflector of God, be imitators of God. What an appeal this has. And you can only see the greatness and value of it, the absolutely amazing character of it, as you study the scripture and come to an understanding of the teaching about the being and nature of God's character. The great question before us as we look at this command has to be, why? Why, O oh Lord? Why are we to be like God? Paul answers that for us as dearly loved children. This shows a great difference between the church and the world's ways. There is a difference, great difference between Christianity and morality. There are people in this world who are unbelievers and they have a very, very strong morality. There are people in this world who are unbelievers and they live very good lives. They see their moral conduct as the pinnacle of their life. Well, they're flat out wrong. They see that they are, are in the wrong when they come to see Jesus Christ. Goodness by itself. Goodness accomplishes nothing in God's eyes. It doesn't matter how good someone is at following the code of conduct. He will never be able to have a solid enough life to please God. Christians are not called to live good lives in order to please God and earn him anything. We are called to live holy lives because we have been adopted into God's family. We are to be good because of who we have become. I'm afraid this is a hard teaching to sell in our nation with its great emphasis on individuality. The reason our nation wants to destroy the idea of an absolute truth goes to the root of this concept of being individual. In the days of the judges, we're told in Judges 17.6, in those days was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They had rejected God. They rejected him as their king. They had no man as their king. They became totally individualistic. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. We're coming dangerously close to that today. We are so close to that. Why? Because we have turned our hearts from following God to following our own wants and desires. The Ten Commandments were given as an expression of God's character. This is where we find how we can imitate God. Peter, quoting Leviticus, says we are to be holy as God is holy. And that's what the Ten Commandments show us, how to be holy. The church is the body that stands on vows. Upon joining the church, we take vows that promise we will live our lives to honor God, and we show that honor by working diligently to be holy. Churches are abandoning the idea of a membership role and taking of vows because people will not make a commitment. They want to be free to come and go as they decide. Even when there are vows, they're ignored. They're ignored when they don't, want to, don't meet the person's agenda. 
when they inhibit their individualism. Christ is the only head of the church. He is the sole authority, and we as believers must conform our lives to his teaching. Why is that so important? Because it is his fullness that is to fill everything, including you and your life. How can you be full of Christ if you refuse to hear his word and obey it? How can you be full of Christ when you refuse to submit to his body? How can you be full of Christ when you, and always go your own way? You cannot. And my friends, those who are not full of Christ will not be with him in heaven. In conclusion, it's not easy to submit yourself to anyone. You're by nature in love with yourself. Man's problem has never been a lack of self-esteem. It has always been an overabundance of self-worth. Since the garden, man has fancied himself God's equal. Paul has made it clear through the teaching of this chapter that it is God and not man that is in charge of this world and the affairs of men. It is by the power of God as displayed in the life, works, and victory of Jesus Christ that man will find his only hope. Without Christ, he will live a hopeless and worthless life destined to end in the lake of fire. In that lake of fire, you will have exactly what you have claimed you wanted throughout this life, individuality. Only those who acknowledge their tendency towards self as a sin will find the true joy of living. That joy is in being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ in coming together with the people of God to celebrate the sameness given in Christ. That sameness is found in being holy as God is holy. I beg you, I beg you, please search your hearts. Are you trying to maintain any kind of distinctiveness for yourself? Please don't. Come to Jesus in humility, admitting your sinful, selfish desires. Come seeking from him the one thing that can make you what you want to be, what he wants you to be. The filling of your life with knowledge of Christ in your heart with his Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is giving thanks for in the people of Ephesus, and it is what you should be striving for when you have all of your heart, mind, and strength. For this is the plan of God for his people. This is what Paul is praying for, bringing his people into the church and coming together in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come with thanksgiving in our hearts for this body of believers you have called together. We lift each other before you in prayer. We thank you for this partnership you have drawn us into through the Lord. We stand together in confidence that since you began a good work in our lives, you will not stop until that work is complete and we're with you in heaven. Thank you, Father. Thank you for this service and for the glory it has brought to your name, the name which is above every name, every name that will confess and every knee will bow. The name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.